And so really the best thing I ever did for myself was like put my own blinders on and really focus on myself and growing into someone who I admired. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team. To the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch. So what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? So please welcome Hannah Bronfman to the couch. She's an NYC. There we go. Hannah is a New York City native, and she's got a lot of titles. She's been a (laughs) DJ, a co-founder, an author, and a lifestyle guru. And Hannah is the woman behind HB Fit, the lifestyle brand that is all about health, beauty, and fitness. HB Fit. See what she did there? Yeah. (laughs) So one more thing. Um, We are so excited to have Hannah moderating the Chicago stop of our How to Skim Your Life book tour that kicks off June 10th in NYC. Hannah has also been someone that we've known uh, in various phases of the Skims journey, and we are so excited to be talking to her this morning. So Hannah, welcome to the couch. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is so exciting. And thank you guys so much for coming so early. And you know, this is awesome. <laughs> well, we, we are thrilled to have you. We're going to jump right in, as Danielle said. So we know you wear a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. Give me your resume for us. Okay, so um, the resume started when I was about 15, and I started working in PR, and my first ever job was at Michael Kors. Um, I'm sorry, you were 15, so like you just were like, hi, I'd like to work here? Well, I was like, I was obviously an intern, and I actually had a cousin of a cousin who worked there, and so she was like, yeah, just come and like be our intern. I was like, okay, and back then, that was like 15 years ago, so there, I mean, obviously, Michael Kors has been a force for so long, but it was, seemed like a pretty intimate team that I was working with, um, and then I worked at... Um, Polo Ralph Lauren, specifically in rugby. And then I moved into the world of music and I worked at um, Warner Music and Universal. And then I started DJing when I was in college. Um, We had one bar in the small town of Tivoli, New York, where I went to Bard College. And we started DJing there every Thursday night, me and my friend Henry. When you say you like started DJing, because I've had many thoughts at times of like, oh, well, when we started the skim, we thought that well, we were going to have to do like odd jobs. Danielle and- suggested that she become a DJ at night with zero experience or musical oh talent. Yeah. So what, we were, what she's so, trying to say is, were you good? Yeah. Like, were you good before you were just like, let me just try to DJ or was this a fun thing? So I've grown up in a musical family my mm-hmm. entire life. My dad used to be a songwriter. My mom was a Broadway actress and my sister, my brother, everyone's musically inclined. I don't have any actual talent to like play instruments or sing per se, but I happened to um, play the drums in college. That and yeah, that so, you know, there's that, but it was very minor. But then I actually, I think I had really good music curation. And so my friend Henry and I, we were honestly sick of just listening to the, you know, townies music and all of our friends wanted to like have a night. Um, it gets kind of boring when you're in such a small environment. So we were like, how can we spice it up? And we literally convinced the borrow 
owner, this guy Michael, to give us a night at the bar and that we would we would definitely double his sales. And so with that, he was like, fine, do whatever you want, take an iPod, blah, blah. And we actually found like this old, like an old mixer and we didn't have any turntables or CDJs or any of those things that kind of are on the side of the mixer. Um, we just literally plugged into the mixer and we're just like, using like cues and things like that. And we just started doing it and people were having so much fun. Obviously we more than doubled the bar. And so they were like every Thursday night, the night's yours. And that's just kind of how it started. And I think in the beginning, Henry would play 45 minutes. I'd play 45 minutes. And then we just got more comfortable and we didn't even time it. And then I don't know. Next thing you know, I was coming back home to New York City for my summer and I was DJing nightclubs and I, like people like had heard about it. And then my friends, Matt and Carlos, who had just opened up the Jane, like gave me my first like real like night in New York. And um, I've never looked back since. It's been like, I mean, wow. I've learned so much technique wise along the way, but um, I kind of started out not really knowing what I was doing, but knowing that I had a really firm understanding of um, like music BPM and mu- music curation. Mm-hmm. So you've obviously expanded your your DJ career yeah. into something much bigger. Yeah. What is the typical day for you? Uh, I follow you on Instagram. It appears that you are much more fit than me. So what what... <laughs> What, what do you do every day? So every day in my life is so different, which is a little, um, a little difficult just for consistency basis. If, honestly, for the last six months, I've been on the road with my book and it's been so demanding. And I actually feel like I've really haven't been in the gym and it's kind of hard for me, someone who, you know, I, I work out because I think it like helps me get stronger and I generally feel like I'm starting my day on the right foot. Plus now with, you know, kind of doing what I do, I feel like my followers and people hold me accountable for working out. I feel like people expect to see that for me. And so it has been a little bit of a harder transition over the last six months, not being able to do that um, and kind of put myself first. It's really been, it's been a demanding last six months. You guys are about to go oh, through great. it. Yeah, I'm like sitting here yeah. and like, oh yeah, my God, what did we just sign up for? It's going to yeah. be amazing, but it's also, it's so draining. You're like, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, no, it is. It, meeting your community is just yeah. the most rewarding thing, but you know, you're on a plane four times a week at least. So that's actually a good transition to talking about how adaptable you are. <laughs> and I want to go back, uh, to sort of set the stage, you said that, you know, you got your, really your professional career started at 15. What were you like growing up? Like, are your, oh is your God. family, how would they describe what you were like as, as a teenager? <laughs> oh God. Um, me as a teenager, I definitely was getting into like all sorts of trouble. I just like was, it's not that I was getting into trouble or that I was like a bad kid. I, I had good grades. I, you know, did as well as I could in school. I was very committed to after school activities, which included, um, you know, dance team, all different types of sports, depending on the season. Um, lots of hang time with my friends. I was very boisterous and like wanting to stay out late past my curfew. And, you know, I I think I was like a typical teen, never really got into too much trouble. Um, but I definitely like caused my family stress for sure. Like they were like, there were times, like my mom has yelled at me and my dad's yelled at me so many times growing up. I remember the, honestly, one of the biggest fights that my dad and I got into um, was because he walked into my room one day and I was playing music from my computer and he was like, 
where is this music playing from? And I was, and it wasn't like the radio. And I was like, oh, it's on my computer. He's like, how did you download the music? Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) My father was kind of like a pioneer when it came to the whole, um, pirating music situation. He actually sued Napster and, um, (laughs) and, and so, yeah, like when he walked into my room and and like, I, I, I was so grounded. I mean, there was nothing I could even say. He knew, I mean, obviously we were all doing it. I mean, duh, there was no iTunes yet. Like what were we doing? So yeah, that was that was definitely. But that story, when you were first telling it, I was like, oh my god, the embarrassment of like your dad walking into your room oh, as a teenage no. girl. I was like, that in your that family was direction bad. than uh, I thought. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I, I was like, whatever. Like the fact that he's going so ham on like Sean, yeah. and I, I was like, I don't even know what I'm. I'm, I'm like, I'm never gonna see my friends again. <laughs> so. As you mentioned, um, you come from a family that is a well-known name that is hugely successful entrepreneurs in, in all different types of industries. How did that give you your entrepreneurial spirit? How did that propel you? Where did where do you think your spirit was like honed? So um, every Thursday night, I, I have the, I'm very lucky to have grown up in New York City, also with my family around me here in New York City. My grandfather lived um, just a couple blocks away from um, me. And every Thursday night, I'd go to his house for um, bison chili night. It's random. He had a bison farm in Virginia. Um, but he, but honestly, he would tell me so many different stories and he would also have people come over for dinner, um, who were either mentorees, colleagues, peers who just had like really amazing stories to tell about my grandfather's entrepreneurial spirit. And, um, I just have grown up around so many hustlers, like even Yes, my dad's family creating, you know, Seagram's out of nothing when, you know, after my great grandfather migrated, um, immigrated and, uh, you know, created this liquor company kind of and was thriving during prohibition to even like that whole side of my family to even my mom who created opportunity where opportunity did not exist. Right. Um, my mom grew up in the South side of Chicago and she really wanted to be in show business. And I'll never forget. This is an amazing story. She, there was like a show in Chicago. Um, it wasn't like an American bandstand, but it was like a, a dance show that was like an after school thing. And or I guess it played on after school. And in order to be in the front row, you had to have a lot of fan mail. Um, and I, my mom's telling this, I'm like, what did you even do to get your name out without social media? Like, I don't even understand. And, and that she was like, well, let me tell you what I did. And she realized that the producers were getting fan mail and that's why the girls were going to be in the front row. So she started to write her own fan mail. <laughs> I swear to God, she would write from all these different people's names, file the stamps, it. and then, and sure enough, she got herself into wow. the front row, and then she moved to New York, and she was in the first all-black cast of Hello, Dolly! with Cab Calloway, and, you know, so between both my parents, I, I understand what it's like um, to follow your dreams and put in the work and benefit from that. So I guess it was only a matter of time for me to kind of figure out what that first entrepreneurial venture would be for me. And it really did come very organically because it was the transition actually between me DJing nightclubs and moving into this corporate DJ world. It's like you read my questions. That was my next yeah. question. <laughs> you know what? Um, so I, I literally, when I went through that transition, I then kind of, you know, I, I was taking better care of myself because I was now DJing for a corporate c- crowd at 6 p.m. as opposed to, you know, 
the club goers at midnight. So was that intentional? Like, did you feel like that actually was very intentional because I woke up one day and I was like, I am so burnt out and I cannot sustain this lifestyle anymore. I'd been working in nightclubs for almost three years, probably five nights a week drinking like crazy, not taking care of myself. And I had committed myself to living a, like the healthiest and happiest version of myself back when I was like 20 years old in college when my grandmother passed away. And so I fast forward a few years, I wake up, I'm literally, you know, hungover. And I'm like, what happened to that commitment that I made to myself? Like, where did that, where did that go? And so what shift do I need to make in order to get back there? And that shift was literally moving into the corporate DJ world. And with that kept came a little bit more of an upkeep with my look. And growing up in New York City, I knew the places I wanted to go to get blowouts, get my nails done, because I was now like trying to represent this professional DJ. I, I you know, I, you know, it's like I didn't also have a understanding of what that looked like. So I was just trying to put my best foot forward. Um, and that's the wor- that was the time of everything being on demand. Uber had come out, Hotel Tonight had come out, and I really felt like there was a gap in the beauty industry for an on-demand service. So that's, I started my first startup in 2012 called Beautified, which was a way to book last minute beauty appointments through a curated list of salon and spas. And that's when we first met you. you. So I remember, um, well, I think actually first we met you, you were DJing somewhere. Mm -hmm. We were at a party for AOL. Yeah, we were DJing. And you came over to us and we saw our skim bag. You're like, I love the skim. Can I talk to you about my new company? And so we're such sure. And so we got together and you were like, I DJ at night. I DJ um, at parties in the afternoon. I also run a beauty startup. And also um, I have all these followers on social media. And you're like, and my co-founder sleeps on my couch. And I was like, who is this person? Yeah. And I was, I was, I remember we, we were talking, we were like, how is she doing all of this? Because we were trying to run one company <laughs> and that was like burnout. So I remember we were walking into the WeWork with yeah. you and Annie, uh, like, on the somewhere downtown. Yeah, the Hudson. Yes, the Hudson, the Hudson location. Yeah. And we walk into your office and you guys just had so much energy and you're talking about Beautified, the app. Mm-hmm. So tell us what happened. So Beautified was awesome. We were so, so proud of it. We had users, we came to market. The day that we got accepted by the app store was the most exciting day ever. Um, and then we raised money, which was insane. A whole, that's a whole other podcast for sure. Yeah. Um, but we ended up raising $1.2 million and uh, that was awesome. And then we had all these huge plans and then shit got really real. And we had a third co-founder who basically hijacked our company from Annie and I. And um, it was the demise of our company and we kind of fell apart. And it was uh, one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. It felt bigger than any oh. romantic relationship <laughs> I had ever come out of, you know. I want to just sort of take a pause around this because I cannot imagine, like, I know how hard you worked on that. And I know that you were, you were doing five different jobs really at that time. How did you find out that someone was like who you trusted literally took over your company? Sure. And what, what do you do? What was your first move? Okay. So really the move started with Annie and I, we were trying to stage the coup. 
So, <laughs> always, right? It always started with us. So, um, actually, Annie and I were the ones to bring in all, all the capital. And so we went to our investors and we said, listen, we're having issues with one of our co-founders. He's trying to micromanage us. And it just, the things are not getting done. And in fact, his behavior and his attitude are, are so off-putting that Annie and I don't even want to go to the office. We are, phys- we are not physically, we are... a verbally getting abused by this guy in terms of also like our equity. We were totally bullied out of our equity, which now people are talking about. And I didn't even realize going through it. And I felt so, we felt really hopeless because his reactions were so, um, just, you know, his outbursts were so intense that we were like, we didn't even know how to handle the situation. So our what we decided to do is we were going to stage a coup. We were going to get um, the company from him. We were going to combine our equity, like the whole thing. And 20 minutes, literally 20 minutes before the papers were going to be served to him, I had a knock on my door and a guy served me the exact same papers. Oh And I think what had happened was some sort of like red flag went off on the back end, you know, whether it was passwords, all of the things. And he was really running the tech team. So I'm not surprised that one of the, one of the tech guys that we had kind of tipped him off. And, um, it was the day before Thanksgiving and, uh, I, 2013, um, and I, I remember I, when people talk, when people like watch sitcoms and people are like crying in bars, I'm always like, oh, that's like a thing. Like people do that. (laughs) I went to the Garrett. I sobbed my eyes out at the bar. The bartender was just kept getting me. I was literally, I was so upset, distraught. And um, so then we went back to our investors and we said, listen, this is now what's happened. We have completely lost our upper hand. Um, And it unfortunately got really nasty and we ended up suing and, we didn't get anywhere and he ended up, you know, we tried teeing up soft landings, trying to be bought out by different companies. And then Annie and I would then come into the fold of their company and, you know, it'd be a nice press story. We could wrap it up with a little bow and that would be that. And none of these options included Peter. And so he was very not into the situation, non-negotiable. Um, and eventually the company died and I haven't seen him since. So I, I mean, not to say that he died, but I'm not saying that, but, um, but, but, you know, it was, it was, it was a serious, it was the, my biggest, I, and then, in, and in that moment, it, and that moment lasted almost a full year of full, you know, I went through every emotion of being, you know, just in denial, jealous, revengeful, I mean, sad, the whole everything. It it took a long time emotionally for me to get over and also for me to get over the fact that I was this failed entrepreneur. It really was like uh, one of those moments where I was talking to my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, and and he really did say when I I was like plotting some like god-awful thing to happen to this guy, <laughs> which I, n- I never went through with any of the things. So I, didn't say, see I, did, yeah. <laughs> I did say them out loud to Brendan. And he was like, the energy that you're spending on this is you can't, you can't spend this time on this negativity and you, you need to focus your positive energy on, on something. And that's when I looked at my device and was like, what's going on here? There's yeah. this whole community. And that's when I shifted my focus. Hey, Danielle. What? Guess what I'm not wearing today? (laughs) Time to talk about third love and bras. (laughs) 
Uh, so Carly just demonstrated the issue that many people have, which is as the warmer weather comes, finally, you start to think about bras and different spring dresses and what works or in Carly's case doesn't work. Thank you for that. Here is something that I never thought we would talk about publicly, but we are big fans of Third Love. They use data points generated by millions of women to design bras with a perfect fit with this very handy fit finder quiz. Um, They also have a 100% fit guarantee. So you have 60 days to wear it, wash it, test it. If you don't love it, return it. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering skimmed from the couch listeners, that's you guys, 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash skim to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase today. So I think, you know, while not all of us have, you know, a horror story like that or a really bad business partner like that, we all have have dealt with professional stress and there's nothing worse for your health than daily stress and anxiety. And so I think the word, you know, the phrase self-care is something thrown around a lot right now, especially it feels very trendy. There's a lot of avocado involved. Like how? (laughs) So much avocado. It's like insane. But you really, really figured out a way to to not only turn that into a business, but to very clearly live it. And so I want to want you to kind of walk us through this pivot to get out of burnout. You know, during that time in my life that felt really tumultuous and heartbreaking, it was a time for me to really focus on myself and kind of understand, you know, trying to pick yourself up and reinvent yourself is not easy. And I didn't necessarily know how it was going to happen, what I was going to do. I didn't necessarily know if I was even allowed to talk about my situation just because of like the legal situation I was in. So I I felt really alone and I felt like I was bottling up all these emotions. Um, And so I really did need to get it out in physical forms of whether it was exercise or... One of the things that I find really hard, and I'm curious your take on this, is, you know, you talked about DJing and the schedule there, and then you talk about this horrible experience that you had, and great experience, but, like, not great outcome. Yeah, great Um, learning experience. Right. Wouldn't change anything about it, to be honest. And now with the book, with your social presence, with HB Fit, it's not like you're doing anything less. It's more and it's bigger, and that's amazing. Do you wait for burnout or do you feel like you now have tools that kind of tip you off to when you're getting there? Because I think one of the hard things is I can recognize when I'm at the stage of burnout and then it's like, okay, you know, go on vacation, do something. Yeah. But I've learned it's really hard for me to recognize the like steps when I'm getting close to it. So I actually do recognize, I I actually, (laughs) I recognize what potential burnout looks like for me based on my calendar. Um, I can tell that if I have two crazy weeks in a row on that 14th day, I'm going to be a hot freaking mess. So what I like to try and do is throughout my week, like really cut down on social obligations. Like sometimes I really do need just a night with my girls. And sometimes I need a night without anyone and just like home to like zone out. And so I really do try to schedule those things for myself. And, um, you know, whether or not it's like I've got meetings back to back or something like even just being able to walk in New York and just take eat, like just take a second to like get some fresh air. Like those are the things I try and schedule within my week to just like, I don't know, 
ground myself because when I'm not grounded, that's when I find that I'm like getting the burnout much more quickly. I'm fascinated. I've always been fascinated with your career of how much multitasking is involved, that you always have all these different entrepreneurial hats on. So how have you figured out tricks or tools to be able to not bring stress from one part of your career to another part of your career? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, Honestly, I love what I do and, and I try not to be too stressed about anything because I feel like I'm in a position that is very different from a lot of people. Like I feel very blessed to be able to wake up and like run my life the way that I want to and that I'm, you know, financially rewarded for that. Um, so I can't really be too stressed, right? Of course, dealing with corporate sponsors and getting content done and running HB Fit and then, you know, having your appearance and all those things like that it can be a lot but it's i try to just remember that it's not really I like when I'm busy. Mm-hmm. Like I feel really good when I'm productive and I'm busy. I feel like I've accomplished things and I like crossing things off my to-do list. Um, but I try not to get over I try not to get stressed. And it is hard when I was starting out, I used to compare myself to so many other women who, if I didn't get a gig and it went to a peer, well, what, what is it about them that they were hired? Is it the way they look? Is it the way that they carry the clothes? Or, you know, what is it? Um, and so really the best thing I ever did for myself was like put my own blinders on and really focus on myself and growing into someone who I admired and it's like, it's not necessarily, you know, it's it's the family pressures. It's wanting to start my own family. And I think, you know, I am a very competitive person with myself. And so sometimes when I don't hit my goals at the time that I want to, that creates stress for me. Um, we have no clue what that's like. Right? Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about our book, How to Skim Your Life. It is all about some of the most important parts of being an adult. Think wine pairings, your finances, your career, big purchases like cars, houses, apartments, and more. It is the kind of book you're going to want to have on your coffee table so you can keep coming back to it. What are you waiting for? Now's the time. Get to it. Theskim.com slash book. That's theskim.com slash book. Go order How to Skim Your Life today. So we are going to get into our lightning round. But before that, we are going to take some questions from our live audience. Great. We've got our first question. Hi, Hannah. Nice to meet you. My name is Joanne. Thank you for coming to talk with us today. Of course. Um, I know we've touched a lot about all of your different, you know, accomplishments and successes. And I was wondering, you've been doing so much since you were so young. Um, What are your biggest tips and advice in regards to how you prioritize your time and responsibilities? And, you know, do you ever struggle with knowing when to say no, um, knowing how not to procrastinate, like staying on top of everything? Okay, so that's a lot of questions. Um, there's a couple parts in there. So, <laughs> so in terms of, I'll start with the part about saying no. Um, I feel like I am now in a position brand-wise that I have the ability to say no, and I feel like there is more power in saying no than saying yes. And then when it comes to social obligations, I am so 
like I feel like moving out of my 20s and into my 30s, I cherish the nights that I have at home. So I'm like eager to say no to a social obligation. Um, and obviously, if there are things that sound really amazing or cool, like sure, but I, I, I don't really think twice about it. And if I'm, you know, not in town, that's like just the easiest way that it's not happening. Um, but I, I really don't have an issue saying no, but I used to. I used to like just when I was starting out and wanting to meet people and build up my network and get my name out there, I was saying yes to everything. And so it has been a transition. Um, and I think that that just comes also with feeling like you're in a place where you don't necessarily need to be going out all the time. In terms of prioritizing my time, I have an amazing tight-knit team um, who help me prioritize. Like I live and die by my calendar. Everything is in my calendar so that it, everything's easy, easily accessible. So I'm not stressing when I'm like in the moment at an event and I have to like whatever. Um, and then I don't remember what else. <laughs> what was Let's have, oh, how not to procrastinate, which is like the number one. Tamar, who works with me, um, has put me on to this like 25 minute thing where like basically for 20, we can't really focus longer than 25 minutes. So for 25 minutes, you actually like have, that's like a first block of work and you don't look at your phone and then you like take two minutes to get, you know. We the, have a whole section about that in our yeah. book. Oh, how to can't skim wait your to life. It. Available can't on pre-order. Literally can't wait, need it. Because, you know, procrastinating, it, like it becomes so real. Like all of a sudden I was like, okay, it's been five minutes and all of a sudden it's been an hour. And I'm like, oh right. my God, I didn't get anything yeah. done that I was supposed to get done. And and that gives me more anxiety. And sometimes I think about the anxiety that procrastinating gives me and that makes me not procrastinate. <laughs> if that makes sense. It does. I think if you're an anxious person, I'm like, yes, I totally get yeah. that. Yeah, Let's get some sure. more questions from the audience. Hi, my name is Nikki. Thank you, Hannah, Carly, Danielle, for being here. Um, so you mentioned about how the experience with your third co-founder didn't work out so well. Um, what advice would you give to someone looking to find a co-founder on the types of questions you should ask them, the traits they should you know, possess, and kind of the tests that you should put them through before agreeing to bring them onto your company? Sure. So, I mean, definitely go through all of their references, right? Call up every single person that they've ever worked for. And then... I think it's also important to put them through like mock tests, like whether it's like, you know, I don't know if you're looking for, you know, obviously having a CTO is very different than having uh, like a CMO, but like there are different kind of instances that you can put them through. That's like a mock setting of what it would, what it would be like also like, and I would also say whether or not their salary and equity asks are of what you are thinking is acceptable for your company, right? Like it was a red flag from me from the beginning that he wanted more equity when we were all starting this project from zero. I was so naive and so excited that I was like, whatever, I don't care. And so you really do need to stand your ground. And if someone's not gelling with your gut instinct, follow your gut 1000%. The co-founder story also really resonated with me. And I think this is kind of a question for all three of you. I think that um, typically in companies, that kind of behavior doesn't manifest as explicitly. Sometimes you see it implicitly. It happens ground up behind closed doors. What do you do about that as founders as it relates to kind of your team dynamics? Because I'm sure you face this in your current companies. Sure. So it, honestly, for team dynamics, it's it's toxic, 
right? So you really do need to, at, at, when we were, when Annie and I were dealing with it, we used to like have our team work out of cute cafes because we all felt like very alienated in the office. But really what we did is we went to our investors and we said, we are having this problem. And in order for us to succeed, I need your help. And going to speak to other founders, um, honestly, like Andy Dunn was, at the time when I was going through this, we met almost like once a week for two months so he could help like coach me through what this was like in a business setting and also emotionally because he had been through it as well. And I think talking about it, but obviously not talking about it too much that like the other person like catches on to what you are trying to do. It's a fine line, but um, you know, you it's important that you change that dynamic because that dynamic could literally ruin everything. And so, you know, obviously I wish that like this co-founder had been more level-headed and even keeled and we could have had these conversations face to face but that wasn't the situation, right? So we, we yeah. had a really easy um, equation given to us early on by uh, someone who was a, a really helpful advisor in the beginning, which is he said there are three types of people on your team at any stage of the company. There are multipliers, um, addition signs, and subtractors. Multipliers are people that come in and they instantly um, add value to the company, right? Like they multiply the value of the company. Then you have the people that are additive. They do what they do and that is great and that's kind of what you need, right? Um, they're not multiplying, but they're a good person on the team. Um, maybe they can turn into a multiplier or maybe they're just great where they are. If someone on your team is a subtractor, if they are actively um, taking away from what you have, that is the definition of a toxic relationship. And those are the people that you can't have. And I think even just because they get that work done, but they're negatively affecting your team culture or morale, it still means that they're a subtractor and they shouldn't be on the team. It's something we come back to all the time because you do get into that position where you're like, oh my gosh, this person is doing a ton, but I feel really torn because yeah. you know they could be doing damage and it's never easy. Um, and so which sign are they was right. a really easy way to make that decision. Yeah, I think I would call a subtractor more of like an emotional vampire <laughs> um, in, 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 in my life. <laughs> yeah. Which I think I think also people like forget that those, that those people exist and it's really, it's not healthy to no. have no. those people in your you life. You shouldn't have vampires in your life. No, like no. Um, we're going to move to the lightning round. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's how it works. We ask you a lightning round of questions. You have to answer as quickly as you can. First question. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? A professional dancer. College major. Fine art. First job. I guess Michael Kors. Worst job. Michael Kors. <laughs> <laughs> Worst professional mistake you've made. Hiring a co-founder without <laughs> properly vetting them. When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Yesterday. Um, how do people know you're stressed? When I don't have anything to say. What is your go-to way to de-stress in the moment? An infrared sauna. Oh, celery juice, yay or nay? <laughs> yay. <laughs> um, what is, what's one part of your routine you'll never put on Instagram? Like my routine with my husband. Favorite workout? Pilates. What drives you? It's my own motivation and I have so many, I aspire to like be like bigger than I am now, but also like 
I guess what really motivates me is like kind of all the people who doubted me before. Um, last question, what's your shameless plug? Um, go out and buy my book, do what feels good. Great. Good. Hannah, thank you thank so you. much. Everyone check out her book, it's awesome. Thank you guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 